0: Let's turn, if you don't mind, to Colossians chapter 1. We continue today our teaching through Paul's letter to the Colossian church. It's our custom here to work through books of the Bible, basically verse by verse. There's a reason why we do that. Not only do we want to be comprehensive as we study the scriptures together. If we teach the Bible verse by verse and we skip something, then you get to call us out on it, and you can say, why did you skip that? Also, by preaching the Bible verse by verse, we get to get the comprehensive, widespread counsel of God. We don't just pick our hobby horses. When it really comes down to it, you do not need from your elders. Rick and I teach most of the time on Sundays. You do not need mostly from us our opinions. You need to hear from God. And so, as we come together, we submit with joy to God's Word. And by preaching the Bible this way, this is how we grow and how we learn how our God is glorified and how we change. And so, we come back now to Paul's letter, and we will spend our time today in verses 24 through 29. I have entitled our sermon today, The Mystery of Ministry, and I'll explain why in just a moment. Let's read together Colossians 1, verses 24 through 29. Hear God's Word. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is, the church, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. May God bless to us the reading of His Word. I grew up in a really, really conservative religious culture. There were all kinds of odd idiosyncrasies about that super conservative religious culture. There were rules about everything, about what you wore, what you put in your mouth, what you listened to, all those kinds of things. I learned to skirt a lot of those rules because I thought they were sort of nuts. My parents had super strict rules about the kind of music we listened to, the biggest family summit. That we ever had was the night that my parents found concert tickets from my two older brothers who had gone to see heavy metal bands. You can laugh. It was funny. It is funny. In retrospect, I don't know what they were thinking. Uh, They thought, I guess, that those were souvenirs that they should hang on to of their quiet rebellion, but my parents found it. We had a huge family summit. Um, That night after we had the huge family summit over heavy metal, um, my brothers were instructed to go throw their, those were cassette tapes back in the day, they were instructed to go throw their cassette tapes in the garbage. Ten minutes later, I was outside my house and my brother was fishing them back out of the garbage can. Um, When I was allowed to drive, I had to share uh, my, my dad's car to drive places and so forth. And we would listen to the local rock stations, and um, you know, back then we didn't have auxiliary cords or Bluetooth to listen to Pandora or Spotify or whatever, we had to listen to the radio. But every time I would get out of the car, I would turn it back to the classical music station, right? These were the, these were the tricks you learned as a rebellious boy in a conservative religious culture. One of the other odd idiosyncrasies about that religious culture, and maybe it's more widespread than I know, is that everybody had what they called a life verse. Did you grow up in a culture like this where everybody had like their life verse? And somewhere along the line, it was a verse that really stuck out to them that was really important to them or maybe like their discipler, their pastor, their parent gave it to them and they would write it down in the front of their Bible. And you could go up to almost anybody in the church I grew up in who was over 18 or whatever and say, what's your life verse? And they would quote it to you. Of course, in the King James, and uh, that was very important to them. I look back at that, and some of those things are sort of passe and, and uh, cute and whatever. But if I had to tell you, because I've sort of come full circle in some ways, if I had to tell you or pick out for you a passage of Scripture which has defined my life, I think it might be this one. This passage of Scripture has become really important to me through the years. At first, it was a bit of a bitter pill. It was sort of like eating kale. (laughs) Kale's good for you, but kale is nasty. (laughs) My wife tells me that she loves kale. People who love kale massage their kale. Do you know this? If you have to massage a leaf to make it tender enough to eat, and douse it in things to make it edible, it is not an inherently good food. But I am told by some, including my wife, that such things become delightful over time. This passage through the years has been a bit of a bitter pill for me, but I have have learned to embrace it, and I think furthermore, I have learned to love it. This is one of my favorite passages in Scripture, and it helps me interpret my life. It helps me interpret my life as a pastor. It speaks of suffering in ministry for the sake of helping others grow and find full maturity in Christ. One might be tempted to approach this passage in the company of just a bunch of pastors, Or perhaps in our context, to just speak to the elders. But I think the principles of this passage apply to all of us, whether we bear some specific title within the church or not. And while some of the truths of this passage do bother us, and at first don't seem that pleasurable or enjoyable if we can see what Paul is saying here, that there is great value even in the cost of ministering to other people, then I think we can see this passage as more than just good, but actually beautiful. So that any of us who are influencing other people To love and enjoy Jesus Christ might be willing to lay their lives down for those they are influencing because of the great value that flows to us who serve and to those who are served. So, this passage is for pastors, for elders, it's for disciple makers. It's for teachers, it's for parents and and grandparents, it's for all of those who wish to use their lives, to leverage their lives, and the gifts that have been given to them to bless others. It's, It's for all of us. For all of us are to be engaged in one way or another in making people glad in Christ so ministry of any sort whether you're paid to do it or whether you're called to do it in any other context is costly when we serve other people with our lives when we leverage our gifts for them it comes at great cost any mother of a three-month-old baby who sleeps for five seconds a night and does laundry twice a day and is struggling just to connect with her husband, she understands the great cost of ministering to another person who depends upon her. Any person who gives themselves over to teaching young children and the repetition that that demands... And the frustration that often comes along with it as these young children come to grips with who they are to be in this world understands the cost of long-term service. Any disciple-maker who, who puts him or herself on the line to bless another who is struggling with sin, their own or others' sin and the effects upon them. People who have gone through trauma, people who are hurting and have been hurting for decades, people who hang in there with other people while they grow and change and learn to embrace Jesus in the midst of a dark and broken world, those people know that there is cost that comes along with ministry. But it's possible for a young mom or a teacher or a disciple maker to... Both embrace the cost of ministry and see it as infinitely valuable. That's that's amazing. And the truth of the matter is, that seems mysterious. Why would a person be willing to lay their lives down at great cost to themselves? That seems mysterious. For if our world, particularly particularly our Western culture, is anything, it's it's a pursuit of comfort and self-preservation. And when we live, all of us who influence others, when we live in such a fashion that we are willing to bear the cost of serving another, it seems mysterious. But the reason we're willing to do it is found in the heart of this passage, which is that as we point others to Jesus, they find the hope of glory, which is far more valuable in comparison to what you lose in the process. And so, ministry is mysterious But it's mysterious only because we are willing to seek something greater in the pursuit of forming or seeing Christ formed in other people and what comes in the end, even though it costs us a lot. And so today we will talk about this mystery of ministry. This passage of Scripture comes after what we've of course, been discussing in the first 23 verses of Colossians chapter 1. Paul has been commending the church in Colossae for their firm faith. And he is pointing them to the object of their faith. That is to say, we do not point people, we should not point people to a subjective faith. This might look like hey, you are a person of great faith. I am inspired by you. At first blush, that sounds really good, but that actually leads to bad places, bad things, bad habits. We should always point people to the object of their faith, to Jesus Himself. And so that that is what Paul has done in verses 15 through 23. So he commends them, then he picks up, in verses 15 to 23, and points them to not just a subjective faith. I'm not just proud of you because you've been faithful. I want to point you back to the one who is unchangeable, to the one who is your only hope. And this was important in Colossae because there were influences, at least outside and perhaps now inside the church, which were calling people to add to the gospel. You need Jesus plus something else. But as we have said many times over the past several weeks, Jesus plus anything equals nothing. And what Paul wanted to do to these believers in Colossae is to settle them in the hope that they had in their object of faith, in Christ Himself. And now he pivots in verse 24, and he will continue down to the first part of chapter 2 and talk about his own ministry and why he does it. The first thing that we will see today in verses 24 through 26 is that ministry the kind that results in lasting transformation is costly and priceless. So I'm I'm qualifying what ministry actually is. There is there is a kind of ministry that just goes through the motions. That's a lot of smoke and mirrors. But ministry that results in lasting transformation is costly and priceless. Paul says here in verse 24 that he rejoices in his sufferings. Doesn't that seem incredibly counterintuitive? Most of us would write something like, I endure my sufferings for your sake. This seems masochistic. A masochist is a person who who likes torture, who likes pain. How many of you like pain? There's like one or two of you who run lots of marathons. You're masochists. The rest of us, we don't like pain. But Paul says that he rejoiced in his sufferings for their sake, and in his flesh he was filling up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions For the sake of his body as the church. Now, if we were being uncareful, we might look at verse 24 and say something like this The atonement that Jesus provided for us was was an initiating kind of atonement, but those who minister to Christ's church have to do something to add to it to complete it. And if that's what Paul means, Then he completely contradicts himself throughout the rest of the letter. In fact, Paul's primary theme in this letter to the church in Colossae is that Christ's atonement was completely sufficient. That's what the letter's about. So in verse 24, he cannot mean something like Christ's atonement, dying for our sins to make us once again whole and to restore us to God, was somehow insufficient. That that cannot be what he means. He means something more like this. When we who serve Christ and bless other people, when we seek to leverage the gifts that Christ has given us to bless other people, that we join Him on a path of suffering. The pinnacle of human history, the pinnacle of, of Jesus' life, the hinge point of all time was when the Son of God took on human flesh and died in our place and rose again. And if we will place our faith in Him, He grants us His righteousness removes our sin, and gives us the hope of eternal life. All of this because of the incarnation, the taking on of flesh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And it's interesting, as you think about this hinge point of human history, this, this Rubicon, this continental divide of human history... That, that it's cruciform in shape. Do you realize that those of us who, who wear or bear religious symbols such as a cross, maybe you wear it on a necklace or earrings, or maybe those of you who are a little more edgy have it tattooed somewhere in your body, that you're, you're wearing a symbol of execution? That's interesting, isn't it? To put it into modern terms, it would be like us wearing an electric chair pendant around our neck. If you were a first century Christian in Colossae, and you were to have fashioned for you by a silversmith a, a cross that you wore around your neck, they would have thought that you were insane And when Paul says that he rejoices in his own sufferings, it looks like insanity until you remember that the second person of the Godhead, the Son of God, took on flesh that his very life might lead to an execution so that we wouldn't have to bear the wrath of God then Paul's willingness to suffer begins to make a bit more sense. Because Jesus willingly walked a path of suffering to restore us to God, and as we follow Him on this path to help others be restored to God, our lives, too, take on that cruciform shape. We join Jesus on a path of suffering Paul did this for the sake of the church, which he loved. And this happened because he was called to be a steward from God. God had called Paul into this ministry. If you remember Paul's story, Paul was not seeking for this role. Much the opposite, Paul was doing his dead-level best to stamp out all the followers of Jesus Christ. Powerfully, miraculously, and as Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, because God set him apart before he was even born, Jesus arrests Paul on his way to Damascus where he is seeking to wipe out more Christians and converts him to faith in himself and transforms him for forever. And he's then given a stewardship from God to bless other people and to leverage his life to bring them into full conformity to Christ. And as you see at the end of verse twenty five, Paul's desire was to make the word of God fully known. This could mean something general like the Scriptures, which at this time would have been the Old Testament. The Bible of the first century church would have been the Old Testament. So Paul could in some way mean, I want to preach the Bible widely so that you understand the big storyline. But maybe more specifically what he means is what that story is about. What is the message of the Old Testament or the Bible as a whole? story of the Bible as a whole is that God has intended to rescue fallen rebels through the sacrifice of His Son. This has been the story from the beginning and will wrap up in the end. There is one big story of the Bible. Someone was asking me this week, how do I get started on my own in studying the Bible? One of the things I said to this person was, was ultimately we don't have to be intimidated by the Bible. The Bible ultimately is one large, beautiful story And everywhere we go in its pages is an unfolding of the details of that story. That though humanity fell willingly from God, God won't leave it that way, but intended to rescue His people through His Son. So what was it that Paul sought to do with his life? To tell this story. What God was doing in the world and through the ministry of the church. And he calls it in verse 26 a mystery. Now this isn't like hocus-pocus magic kind of stuff. This is something that in the Old Testament was somewhat concealed, but now through the coming of Christ it has been fully revealed and has been made known to his saints, to his own people. Ministry that results in lasting transformation is costly and priceless. Why was Paul willing to pay such a high price? Because of the value of the message and what it accomplished. If you remember Paul's story, I just referenced it in Acts chapter 9. Paul is converted, and then Jesus appears in a vision to a man named Ananias, and he says to Ananias, Go, for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Ananias could not have been too thrilled to share this message. All he knew about Paul is that Paul killed Christians. Now, apparently, this guy has been converted And not only does he have to go hang out with him and instruct him, he also has to give him really bad news. Hey, Paul, now that you have joined uh, our club, you know, this Christian club, um, it's going to be super costly for you and it's going to be really, really hard. Not the best news in the world. How did this play out in Paul's life? Let's turn to Acts chapter 14. In Acts chapter 14... We find Paul in Lystra, and it's an instructive story of what Paul was willing to go through here in his first missionary journey for the sake of Christ and those to whom he ministered. In verse 19, Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. These are people who were in opposition to Paul's message. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. So, as far as they knew, their mission had been accomplished. This is a horrible way to die. But when the disciples gathered about him, thinking he was dead, he rose up and entered the city. On the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. Now, you would think that these people who were huddled around him would be like, Paul, take a break. Go, go to a different city, you know, take a Sabbath, take a sabbatical, get some rest. But he goes back to the city. According to verse 21, they preach again to that city and make many disciples, which means that they must have been there for a while under more threat. They return to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That's striking. Paul and those whom he influenced understood that any kind of ministry that results in real lasting change will be incredibly difficult. How does this possibly get worked out in 21st century America? Most of us are constantly seeking everything that we can to insulate ourselves from trouble. We have 11 different kinds of insurance. Our cars now steer themselves. We are not content with just like front passenger airbags. There's airbags that deploy everywhere in our car, like on the sides and on the top and whatever. Um, My mirrors now on on my car tell me when there are cars behind me. I don't even have to turn my head anymore to back up because my, my camera on my dashboard shows me where I'm backing up. Uh, We protect our kids. We have 70 different kinds of medicine in our medicine cabinet. We, We avoid dangerous things and only go to safe places. We have all that we could conceivably ever want. We live more comfortably and opulently than any king from ages past. A passage like Colossians chapter 1 verses 24 through 29 strikes us as funny. A passage like Acts chapter 14 verses 19 through 23 strikes us as just kind of funny. Romantic, people who are willing to lay their lives down for something greater than themselves, but, but that's a great historical lesson and not for me. But my friends, do you not realize that when it really comes down to it, that that the kind of ministry that results in lasting change will always come at great cost, no matter what age we live in, no matter how comfortable we seek to be, no matter how opulently we live. Why is that? Because when sin entered the world, brokenness came. And God, rightly so, cursed the world because of sin. There there were consequences for the sin. And not only that, this world, at least temporarily, was given over to the evil one, to our great enemy, to Satan. And anyone who is going to come out of the brokenness of this world, to deal with truly with the consequences of their sin and the sin of others, maybe your parents or your grandparents or siblings or neighbors, others who have hurt you, anybody who is going to to deal squarely in the face with with such consequences and furthermore deal with the opposition of the evil one, such people are going to undergo great conflict. For sin is not easily overcome, and its consequences are deep and thoroughgoing. And furthermore, Satan, our great enemy, does not give up territory willingly. So, Paul, who entered into places like Lystra, this man who formerly was a tool of the enemy to wipe out Jesus people he himself and those to whom he ministered this was satan's former territory i've told this story before when i was a child we were at one point vacationing out in northern colorado not too far from the wyoming border and we were eating breakfast one morning and we had on our airstream trailer uh, a you know a door that was like the metal door you shut at night, but then we would leave that open during the day when the days were nice, and we'd have a screen door. So we're sitting there at the fold-out table eating breakfast, and my dad says, look out there, and right below the step uh, going out to the ground was a rattlesnake, a pretty good-sized rattlesnake. So my brothers and I, of course, like rushed to the door to see this rattlesnake. This door did not latch very well, so we almost fell out on top of the rattlesnake. My mom gasped and screamed. My dad uh, always had lots of tools and weapons, and so he had this shovel, and it was really sharp on the end because he grew up in Kentucky, and whenever you grow up in Kentucky, you always have to deal with rattlesnakes, and so my grandparents used to kill rattlesnakes with goosenecked hoes. Those of you who grew up on farms know what those are. It's a long handle with a a hoe head that kind of goes like that, and you chop the head of the rattlesnake off, so my dad knew how to do this, so he went out, and he took his sharp shovel, and he Cut the head off of the, of the rattlesnake. So then we were allowed to come outside and we wanted to touch it. But my dad said, You can't touch it because it can still bite you. That's kind of like Satan. A death blow has been rendered to him. His defeat is certain. We sang earlier, Lo, his doom is sure. But he's dangerous. He is like a cornered animal who will do his dead-level best with the last breath he has to destroy and hurt God's people. He does not give up territory easily. And this is why ministry is so hard. So I say to our elders here, as you interact with people and help them grow and change, it's going to be hard because sin is hard to overcome. And the father of lies Mm -hmm. He who was a murderer from the beginning will do his dead-level best to thwart every effort you put into helping other people change. Isn't this parenting, though, too? Those of us who are seeking to raise our children to know and love Jesus, their hearts will not be conquered and overcome and submit to Jesus easily. Parenting is difficult. Sin is hard to overcome. The consequences of the curse are real and far-reaching. And he who is the temporary God of this world will not give up territory easily. Paul knew this. But because of what came from ministry, ministry that results in lasting change, he was willing to suffer. I encourage our elders here to take up Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 38. And consider what Paul had to say to the Ephesian elders and why he was willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel and as he called them to do the same. But for all of us, Romans chapter 8, verses 16 through 17, these verses are instructive. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That sounds great. But don't forget the rest of verse 17. Provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. The path to glory will always be marked by difficulty and hardship. This is the economy of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, The first will be last, and the last will be first. Life comes out of death. And Paul, because of the grace of Jesus, embraced this upside-down economy and gave his life over to it. Ministry, the kind that results in lasting transformation, is costly and priceless. Why is it priceless? Well, that's what verses 27 and 28 are about. Such ministry is of infinite value because it results in regaining what we lost in the fall. So notice again, verses 24-26, through 26, ministry is, is costly and priceless. That's how Paul viewed it. Why is it priceless? Because we regain what we lost in the fall. And what is it we regain? What do we get back? We get God back. Look at verse 27. To them, to former generations, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. What is the mystery? That all peoples, not just God's covenant people, the Jews, but all peoples throughout the earth get to share in a reunion with God. That when we trust Christ, we are restored to God, and God through Christ takes up residence inside of us. If this weren't spelled out for us in the pages of Scripture, it would seem blasphemous and way too good to be true. In other words, we don't understand just how good the gospel is. The gospel is more than just the promise that we won't be punished. The gospel is the eternal promise that we get God back. What was lost in the fall? Not just the pleasures of Eden. Not just the the goodness and virtue of of a harmonious relationship between a man and a woman not just ease. The primary thing that was lost in Eden was that humanity lost God. But He promised them right away that He would send a Redeemer to restore them to Himself. And my friends, that's the mystery of the Bible. For little by little, page by page, God began to unfold through the 39 books of the Old Testament that he would keep his promises to restore humanity, lost fallen humanity to himself. How will he do that? He will do that through a redeemer. Who is that redeemer? Christ. Christ died for us and rose again to conquer sin and death, and when we trust him, he actually takes up residence inside of us. That is shocking that's how good the gospel is we who willingly rebelled against god who spurned him who rejected him he pursued and now he lives inside of his people we get god back why was paul willing to view the gospel as both costly and priceless Because the ministry that he pursued was of infinite value. Because Paul understood that through this gospel ministry, he got God back. And all those to whom he ministered, that he poured his life out for, for whom he was willing to suffer, they got God back. And any elder, pastor in this church that is leading you must embrace both the cost and the infinite value of ministry. And I can say, because I spend a lot of time with the elders in our church, that they do that, and I love them for it. But we as a larger church must embrace this as well. For if we are not in some way or another encountering opposition, we're probably not doing real ministry. So whether this is in our church or in your individual families, We will run up against stiff opposition, but the fruit that comes from that, my friends, is of infinite value and makes the path of suffering worth it. I am not a masochist, and I don't think most of you are either, but I say to you, my friends, that the difficulty and hardship and great sacrificial cost of leveraging your life and your gifts for the good of another will result in something that is worth every ounce, every moment of your suffering. I promise you. And this is why Paul was willing to go through what he went through. And so, his pursuit… And those that he led, disciples that he made, who made other disciples, verse 28, because he uses the first person plural, him we proclaim. So Paul and those whom he influenced to influence other people, because discipleship is generational and replicational. We warn everyone and we teach everyone with all wisdom. Why? What's, what's the goal? The end of verse 28, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. This, this is why we do what we do, that we may see all of you presented mature in Christ. Moms and dads, this is why you do what you do. Yes, we want our kids to be good students. Yes, we want our kids to be well-rounded, but, but what do you want mostly for your children? Something that is of far more infinite value than Baseball or basketball or football or band or dance or good grades or what college they go to. What do you want most of all for your kids? What will last forever? People who know and treasure Jesus supremely, and that's why Paul laid his life down for other people. I'll give you a couple of references you can pursue as sort of a corollary study Rich led us earlier in the Scripture reading through Genesis chapter 17. This is a really great passage which indicates to us that God's intention was always to save all peoples everywhere. Not just His covenant people, but but people like us. People without Jewish ethnic background. In Isaiah chapter 11, another great passage. This is a promise of the coming Messiah who will restore God's glory to the earth. This is echoed in a passage like Habakkuk chapter 2 where the prophet says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Jesus has initiated this. He has brought us back to know and experience God. We get God back. That's the beauty of the gospel. John the Apostle says in the introduction to his gospel, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. What has Christ come to do? To reveal to us and to restore us once again to the glory of God. Paul says this in Romans 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We who were enemies are now brought back into vital union through him, through Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We get to share eternally life with God. Ministry, the kind that results in lasting transformation, is costly and priceless. Why? Because such ministry is of infinite value, because it gives us God back. And now, the end of the passage, verse 29. Such ministry will require our very lives, but is enabled by the limitless power of Jesus. There's sort of brackets to this passage. Verses 24 through 26, suffering. In the middle, the reason for the suffering. Verse 29, a willingness to suffer. Such ministry, ministry that results in lasting change, will require our very lives But we are not alone such ministry is enabled by the limitless power of Jesus which is why Jesus says to us in John 15 abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine neither can you unless you abide in me I am the vine you are the branches whoever abides in me and I in him he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me you can do nothing do we go this alone? Do we who make disciples, who help others find maturity in Christ, do we go it alone? And the answer is no. Parents, you who are seeking to raise children to know and treasure Jesus, do you do it alone? And the answer is no. But our tendency is to, under our breath, say yes. For far too often we seek to do things in our own power. But the Lord Jesus Himself, He who has restored us to God, who gives us God back, tells us that He not only calls us to such ministry, He enables such ministry. This is not the gospel, but it is an implication of the gospel that He who has called us to gospel ministry, to see Christ formed in other people, not only commands it, but enables it. A couple of passages that you can look at to see how Paul viewed the power that rested within him our 2 Corinthians chapter four, verses seven through 18. Paul was willing to partner with Jesus, although Jesus was the primary power source for the good of the church. And in Ephesians chapter one, Paul says there that the very power that God leveraged toward Jesus to raise him from the dead resides within us as well. this power from God, power from heaven to see others changed. And so I say to you. That ministry that results in lasting transformation will always cost us something. But it's not just costly, it's priceless. Why? Such ministry is of infinite value because we get something in return, which is of far greater value than anything we give up. What is it that we get? We get God back. Christ is in us. And what's our response to that? Verse 29, we toil and we struggle, but always dependently. So we who are seeking to leverage our lives to bless other people, we are not alone. And the value that flows to us who lay our lives down, who are willing to undergo such cost, the treasure and value that we will receive in return and the treasure and value that others receive because we lay our lives down at such cost, will be of infinite value. So I say to all of us, all of our church family, let us be willing to toil and struggle. Let us be willing to lay our lives down at great cost because what we gain in return is far, far greater. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, now I pray that by Your Spirit, You will remind us of the glory of the gospel that you have restored us to our creator that you have given us a father that you now actually live inside of us and promise us that all the things that have been broken are being undone that life comes out of death and despite the fact that we are called to lay our lives down for other people to join you on the road of restoration, for this world is so broken and seeking for restoration and wholeness in ways that can never restore and make whole. Because you have called us to this ministry of restoration and wholeness, we recognize that it will be difficult, that regaining the territory of the evil one will not come without great cost. But I pray that you will enable us, you will help us to be willing to lay our lives down for your glory and for the good of others. And may we see the infinite value of such ministry, all of us, whatever capacity you've given it to us, whoever we are called to influence. May we be willing to see that the great cost that is called from us pales in comparison to the value of what comes. Make us a church that leverages our lives for the good of one another and the good of our community. And may we see glorious things happen that exceed our imagination. Do this, we pray, for your glory and the joy of many. Amen.